Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all, this is episode 122, and today I sat down with my good friend BDK of Omega Frequency to talk about how the early Christian writings have shaped his worldview. We also discuss a few things we each would have done differently after beginning to study the Anti-Nicene Fathers. And to find all things Omega Frequency, go to omegafrequency.com, or you can check out our YouTube channel, Omega Frequency Live, where you'll get access to a bunch of content that we put out every week. And if you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And if you're blessed by my book, my new book, Faithful Witness, Please consider leaving a rating and review on uh, that Amazon page, and there's a link to that in the show notes as well, where you can get your own copy, either in audio, paperback, or digital form. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 122, The Evolution of BDK. BDK, man, thanks so much for coming on the program today. Hey, it's always good to hang out with my bro. For sure. Uh, I, I usually this is where I usually have something witty to say, but <laughs> I'm I'm a little witty doubt. But anyways, man, it's a blessing to be here, bro. Seriously, is. Hey, man, and you know uh, you did an interview with my wife a few months ago on her show, uh, Faithful Podcast with Stephanie Baker. So. If you're listening today and you want to know, like, who is this BDK guy? What's his story? Go check out her her episode with BDK. It's episode 44 on the Faithful Podcast. A little a little plug for my wife there, but um, let's let's do a little a little shameless plug for Omega Frequency, if that's okay. Can you tell tell the folks a little bit about Omega Frequency and where where they can find us and, and a little bit about what we do? See, look at you all trying to be all. Uh, it's not as slick as you, and <laughs> and and marketing everything of like you you okie doke both of us. You were like, hey, if you want to know more about this, go listen to my wife's podcast. They're gonna go over and listen to your wife's podcast. They ain't gonna have a reason to come back and listen to our <laughs> podcast, sir. That's just how that's gonna work. They're gonna be like, who are these two idiots? <laughs> Clearly, Stephanie shows the is the cream of the crop on this one. She does a good job. Um, so do you, though. So do you. So. Tell the folks about Omega Frequency. Uh, Omega Frequency is a, it's a ministry that helps equip people to live out their lives in light of Christ's soon coming. Um, it's a ministry that helps uh, not only equip us to endure to the end, to overcome as the one who is the overcomer lives in us, but it's also there to kind of help prepare us to really understand the seasons and the times that we're living in and to understand the gravity of the thing that we are fighting for, which is truth. And 
once you hit the New Testament, I believe it's all end times truth from Matthew to Revelation, and we'll talk about that later on tonight. We do that in a couple of different ways. We have a podcast. That's how this ministry started. We mainly do that through our YouTube channel. We do that through uh, things like BDK Live, where I take current events and talk about them in the light of Bible prophecy and how some of that stuff is fulfilling Bible prophecy. We do a chapter by chapter, verse by verse uh, study through uh, the New Testament when opposite weeks. I do stuff with you about contending for the faith. Um, You have your your, uh, podcast on our video channel. And then I think one of the most important things we do, honestly, is on Saturday nights, which technically, I guess, if you were doing an early church thing, would be Sunday morning because the sun has now set. But we basically gather together at 8 p.m. Central Time. We have church. We worship. We take communion. We study God's word. And then when that stream goes off the air at around like 10, 1030, we usually stay up till about like one o'clock in the morning on a separate stream, praying, having fellowship, uh, talking, answering questions. Um, so that's kind of what we do, man. It's like a giant prayer meeting. We're basically trying to take the early church model of what happened at Sabbath service, if you want to call it that, or the Sunday service and doing it in a virtual format. And we're still kind of figuring that out as we go along, but God's good. Amen. Amen. That's great, man. So a lot of what we do um, will dabble into early Christian writings. Uh, you'll get some of that, like with the Contending for the Faith um, show that we do uh, like every other Friday, basically. We're, we're going through the Didache, which is, at least as far as I know, the earliest non-biblical Christian document. Um that we have. And so you got introduced to the early Christian writings a few years ago, and they began to shape your your worldview and uh, your approach to ministry and all that stuff. So I thought we'd just begin the conversation this way. It'll be a two-part discussion where we're talking about um, how these early Christian writings shape have been shaping you and your worldview, and then we'll talk about some things that uh, you would have done differently um, looking back. So should be a, a pretty cool discussion. I like to have these conversations with with some of my buddies that have gotten into, into this stuff because I, I think there are some commonalities that we've shared along the way while still having a unique journey. So, brother, tell me about how some of these early Christian writings have been shaping you and your Christian worldview through the years? So they became a touchstone or kind of like a window into the heart or the lifestyle of an early Christian. So when you read the book of Acts, you see like these glorious highlights of them going around and doing all these exploits and they're contending for the faith and they're doing the signs and the wonders and all that stuff. And as a preacher, we tend to dig uh, sermon topics out of that kind of stuff. Mm. What really impacted me, like, because I kind of knew who the church fathers were, right? I kind of knew who they were. Did I have any, you know, just real understanding of the things they wrote and the importance of them? No. But I knew of them. I knew who they were. I knew that 
you know, the history of the early church. Uh, they teach you that in Bible school, but they kind of tell you that that stuff's really not that important, you know? And so I never really learned of it in Bible school. I learned how to uh, minister from the worldview of you go into the text and you, and you exergize the test and that's how you should do it. Right. You should, not try to read yourself into the text. But when you start, when you start uh, reading like how they live their faith, the things that they believed in, how closely it aligned with the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. um, When you start reading uh, not only the things that they're saying about what they're doing, and about how it's practically playing out. Like they're saying, hey man, if Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every Roman soldier, he disarms us. Mm. Whoa. Um, you showed me some of the writings of people that would talk, like the conversations that people would have between the early church fathers and then the people that were Roman or what the Romans wrote about the early church. And the more I read that stuff, I began to see how they practically lived out the things that were trying to exegete from the scripture, Mm. how they lived it out. And then when I began to understand that, like it took it from the realm of theology to the realm of something very relatable. And when I say stuff like that, people are like, oh, he's bailing on theology. No. No, man, like I love theology, but theology without example, without some sort of like touchstone or a compass to say like, oh, well, this is what it says in the book of Acts, but that was written 2000 years ago. Now we're debating over what stuff is. Let's just go back and see what they did and how they lived and how they understood some of this. And it was like a course correcting compass. Um, and more powerfully, I began to understood what really fascinated me, bro, is this whole, uh, Nero debate, like the preterists, uh, mm. and I have preterist fan friends, like my, my, my friend, Brian Gadawa, yeah. uh, who, who's like, how come he's not having me back on the show? Well, this is because I'm not doing book reviews anymore, but like, the reason that his stuff is so compelling is because these early Christians, while they did not really believe that Nero was the Antichrist, they believed that that was coming later. Um, they went through so much stuff that mirrors the prophetic hour that we're living in. And I would even say it was worse for them than what we have. And I begin to see not only through the, what people are saying about them, and about what they do when they meet and about the way that they carry themselves and how they're being accused of crimes they didn't commit. There's conspiracy theories flying around these guys all over the place. They're literally living in a time of the Antichrist that we are coming upon the fullness of. Hmm. And they live in such simplicity. Their theology is so simple, but like the surety of their faith the things that they're willing to die for, the things, the hills that they're willing to die on, the concessions that they are making and that they aren't making for unity, how they show love, how they pray for people. Um, it, It just strikes me that in my life, 
I need to go back to a simpler practical application of the scripture. You know, because, like, I make no bones about it. I'm a spirit-filled Christian, right? Mm. Came, like, out of the heavy Pentecostal movement. And I've always looked at the book of Acts as this thing where this is the church operating at its full peak function. Look at the power they were walking in in the book of Acts. As a revivalist, as an evangelist, I would do meetings and I would try to stir people up to pray and to repent because I wanted to see that demonstration of spirit and power that accompanied the preaching of God's word. But like, I think the simplest thing that I came to the understanding of is that before you can walk in any of that power, you just have to simply walk in the way. Mm. And we've lost that. We've lost that path. We've lost that road. Um, they lived out their faith so simply, so simply and such like they didn't have to like teach a class and what the Sermon on the Mount said, like they had the Didache, they had these things, they had these teachings, but they just lived it, man. No one had to convince people or browbeat people or trick people into living that lifestyle because they were born again. That lifestyle was completely, completely in them, their whole entire nature changed. And, and they just walked so simply. They lived out their faith so simply that today it's heresy. Hmm. The things that they did, the way that they acted out their faith, the simple things they believed in is heresy nowadays. It's literally gotten to that point because Christianity has kind of walked a different pathway that says basically, that the people around us can't get saved until we save the nation that the people live in. Because if we save the nation that the people live in, that'll give us freedom to preach this gospel so that we can save the people in the nation. We have to disciple a nation before we disciple the people of a nation. And that is by far the Western model of Christianity. And I don't say that to be a Pharisee and to throw stones at people because I was firmly of that camp up until I met a dude named Phil Baker. <laughs> you know, um, I was kind of swinging away from it. But like, after I read your book, man, and after I started, you like really just started showing me some of this stuff. I didn't realize that I was part of that conservative evangelical, uh, I wouldn't say I was ever Christian nationalist, but I was a Christian constitutionalist for certain, man. I was trying to redeem and restore Babylon instead of coming out of Babylon, man. And when I look at how the Christians lived during this time of oppression, they faced the same issues we faced. They had just the same opportunities to be involved in politics and all that stuff. And they were like, if we have people talented enough to do that, they can be pastors, you know? Mm. We have this, this idea that we have to defeat tyranny at any cost, any cost. The ends will justify the means as long as we defeat tyranny. And we'll do that even if it goes against um, King Jesus's kingdom code of ethics, as I like to call it. But like these early Christians, more than just their writings, but their testimony and the way that they lived out their lives, like showed that they really didn't engage themselves in these civilian affairs that Paul forbids us from engaging in. They, uh, 
They didn't fight back against Rome and defend themselves with swords. And they cared more about eating together at like a supper table. And they would call that church rather than building a mega church. And the modern church movement says, well, these these Christians, they're well-intentioned, but they just really didn't understand what Jesus was teaching in all of this. And if you try to live by that, you're fanatical. I literally saw a highly respected and successful minister calling out a brother on his uh, podcast a couple weeks ago saying that this guy was crazy because when the dude broke into his house, he used the name of Jesus and rebuked the devil and the guy left instead of pulling a gun on him. Mm. And the, this, this, this Christian pastor's like, this guy's crazy. He needs to compartmentalize the teachings of Jesus. And if he doesn't com- um, compartmentalize, big, big fancy word, the teachings uh-huh. of Jesus, then he'll never understand the role of self-defense in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He'll never understand the concept of just war and civil disobedience against tyrants. And I'm like, heresy, man. Heresy, dude. It's just amazing how far we've gotten away from just simply living out the truth of the way of God. And so, like, if I can encourage anyone that's listening to the podcast, really start to check some of this early church stuff out. But when you're checking it out, man, the theology is cool and it, it's a good uh, compass to make sure we're interpreting. It's a good commentary. Like if I'm going to read a commentary, I'm not going to read John MacArthur's commentary on the New Testament. I'm going to read the early church fathers. It's an awesome commentary. But really dig into some of the stuff that was going on. Really dig into the history of it and try to put yourself in their shoes and see how they reacted to these big ticket items that we're going through now, man. And... Uh, Really ask yourself, are we doing what they did? How come these simple Christians who couldn't compartmentalize things and and really didn't understand the way the world worked, how come they just lived a very simple, let's uh, get together, let's sit down and have a meal together and call that church with a bunch of people and pray until the wee hours of the morning and take communion and live in a way that's completely different than than the the, the empire of Rome? And then ask yourself how those simple, ignorant people ended up turning the world upside down and reaching their generation, which was a feat that no other generation has ever been able to replicate before, man. Hmm. Man, there's so much there that you just said. One thing that's been really good for me uh, currently, and this is like over the last two years, two and a half years, this has really developed. I I have a great Sunday night small group. And we've we've we're very Bible centered and um, Bible based. There's a lot of discussion based on the text. We go word by word, verse by verse through different books of the Bible. And um, but not everybody agrees, right? And that's o- right. that's okay in this group. And as long as you're trying to back up what you believe from the Bible, it's cool. <laughs> you know, we're not trying to back up what we think from like our own personal experience or our feelings or whatever. Now, I mean, the early Christian stuff is definitely taken into account because that's just historical fact of how things were lived out. But um, I, 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 I see this gentleness in 
the early Christians, this boldness and firmness, yet also a gentleness toward like their opponents. Like, I will argue with you, but I'll also die for you, you know, kind of approach. Yeah. And that is so rare today from Christians. It's like there, there's the gentle, the gentleness is not so much present on Facebook <laughs> from from a lot of people. No. And and yeah. you know, one thing I'm sorry, man, I'm soapboxing, dude, but we're kinda off script, you That's know. That's cool. So, this is gonna be a soap soapboxing episode. I can feel I, it already. Dude. <laughs> you know, everybody wants to be a part of the remnant, right? Everybody right. wants to be a part of the remnant. And pretty much everybody thinks they're part of the remnant. But that's just not possible to be true in actuality. Everybody right. can't be in a remnant. And it doesn't matter if, if everybody thinks they are. They're not. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. I just, I need to be a lot more gentle. And I wish, and this is kind of getting the second part. We don't have to go to the second part yet. But like, I wish I would have been a lot more gentle when I first started getting into this stuff about like loving your enemies. Oh, me too. And I was yeah. not very gentle, which is quite ironic, right? About wanting people to uh, change their worldview quickly, you know, and adopt mine. And, you know, dude, I'm like, it is hard. I'm so, I'm so stubborn, BDK. <laughs> Uh, when I read that passage in Ezekiel about like God making his forehead harder than flint, like that really resonates with me for better and for worse a lot of times. And um, like it, take, it takes a long time to change my mind. Like if we were going to get into doctrinal stuff, like it took a long time to convince me about nonviolence. It took a long time to convince me about once saved, always saved, not being... Um, I don't think it's true. Um, it took me a long time to to be convinced about the uh, pre-trib rapture not being what I I don't think it's true. And a lot of this came from not just careful study of the scriptures, but the early Christians. But you know, Amen. once I come to that realization, I want everybody to see things my way, and it just doesn't yep. happen that way. It's so ironic. Like I want people to think critically. Uh, but it thinking critically in a, in an honest and thoughtful way usually takes time. And I wish that I would have been much more gentle in trying to convey some of these truths to, to people and um, so much more patient. And so basically, I mean, it's like saying I, um, I wasn't very loving you know, when I was first coming to to know these these truths. And I don't think I was as, um, I don't want to say filled with the Spirit, uh, fruitful, I guess, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, as, as I thought I was. Um, and I, I, I guess still, you know, I, I've got a long way to go, man. But this group that I've been a part of has been really good for me to see folks who don't always believe like me be very gentle and humble and argue right from the text and like get yeah. into the language of it, you know? 
and the historical background and the and man, that's so cool for me to see folks that don't totally agree back it up with the Bible, but do it with humility. And um, it's like they're being patient with me, you know, because you know, in, in some areas they think I'm wrong. Um, so I don't know, man. Um, what what's one or two things that? Well, hold on. Let me let me back up. Did you uh, after all that rambling? I hope I didn't make you lose your train of thought. But um, did you want to add anything to uh, what you had already said about the early Christian writing shaping your worldview? Um. I kind of went home where it shaped my worldview, but like, I'd like to talk about how it shaped my ministry. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. Because I think that's important. And I'm definitely going to talk about, uh, the biggest regret that I had also kind of falls into the role of patience. And it also kind of falls into the way that we argue for truth, especially with such an explosive, uh, stick of dynamite that the kingdom of God teaching is. Mm. It is, man. It's it's probably the most volatile uh, piece of dynamite you can throw into a, into a crowded room, which it shouldn't be that way because it's, it's actually the most simplest uh, non-dynamite thing, but it's dynamite because we've gotten so far away from its core uh, principles, man. Um you talked about this uh, group that you do on sun- Sunday nights. Yeah. Um, this group that we do on Saturday nights online. Yeah. Um, came from the war- the early church view. Yeah. And the reason that it's stuck around and the reason that it's morphed is because <sighs> I asked myself, what would the early church do? It's kind of amazing how, you know, everything just comes into your life in uh, in seasons, man. And one of the blessings that you and I, and I'm going to thank you for this, man. You definitely knew way more about the kingdom of God and way more about the nonviolence and all this other stuff than I did. And you were extremely gracious to do a lot of those controversial episodes with me, (laughs) you know, and stand by me and help correct me and give me some sort of a guide rail. Um, because otherwise it would have went way worse than it did. Um, (laughs) you know, they were calling me the David hog of gospel preaching when we did the faith, fear and gunfire episode, like that would have, that would have been, and it would have went way worse because like, I had that stick of dynamite. And if I didn't have somebody to be like, hey, maybe don't throw that there. (laughs) It could have been bad, man. But like, I think it was an awesome blessing because I had a few years to really dig into this before the COVID hit, man. And, you know, when COVID did hit, right? And no one in, in, in the first few weeks of it were very concerned. You were like hanging out with me and Kurt in Milwaukee, man. And the, the biggest worry we had was how come uh, the salt and the pepper packets were not in the shakers at the 
Texas Roadhouse. <laughs> you know, like, why are you being stingy with the with the the cinnamon butter here, people? Um, <laughs> and if you would make if you would have any delays getting home, like a few weeks later, everybody was losing their mind, man. The media, the government got involved. Churches got shut down. People got quarantined into their house. Then the people started freaking out like. I was even getting a little scared because, I mean, like all of us that kind of know Bible prophecy knew what was coming. Sure. We've been talking about something like this is going to happen. Now we're seeing it. We're we and we know in real time what's going to happen, right? We know that this isn't just a three week lockdown. This is like the first steps towards you know the Antichrist system, really truly taking on flesh and blood, man, and. At the time, there was a religious freak out. Like, I couldn't tell you the amount of pre-tribbers, uh, pre-trib backsliders, as I like to call them, <laughs> who who believed in the who believed in the pre-trib, right? Yeah. But were convinced that that oh, this is going to be the mark of the beast, which means the rapture is going to happen tomorrow. And I ain't I. I well, it's great that you have this pre-trib viewpoint, but I'm going to hell. And it's like. It was such an amazing moment of ministry because they were reaching out. Mm. Everybody was like, this is going to turn into the mark of the beast, man. And I remember me and you talking about the Chinese Christians in Wuhan, right? Yeah. How they were in the streets. They were disobeying tyranny, right? Right. They weren't, you know, they weren't in trucks uh, plowing over rescue missions and beating up people and swearing at people and peeing over monuments, they were disobeying tyranny by going out on the streets where they were not for, supposed to be. They were handing out uh, gospel right. tracts. They were handing out water. Yeah. I believe they were handing out masks. They were wearing masks. Yeah. And I was like, this is what the early church would do, right? Yeah. That's the civil disobedience that they would do. And then I came to a very scary, scary realization, bro. As soon as I would talk about these things in public or I'd show pictures, a bunch of people would all of a sudden like jump up in the chats and be like, hey, these people are wearing masks and they're handing out masks. Mm. And and look, they must not be of God. They don't have faith. If they had faith and they were real Christians, they would know that the Wuhan government is is it's all part of the plan and it's all part of the shenanigans and and they wouldn't need to be wearing masks if they had faith in God because without faith it is impossible to to uh, please God, right? <laughs> like when when we when me and Kurt went to uh, IKEA. Yeah. To get uh, awesome Swedish meatballs and uh, buy equipment so that we could preach the gospel on YouTube, we had to wear a mask to enter into the building. Yeah. And we took pictures because we were super excited that, like, dude, we're, we're finally going to use the money that you guys gave us, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, and people were freaking out because we were wearing masks. Like, literally, if I would have had a picture of me committing adultery on my wife— I would have been far more forgiven than wearing a mask. Right. And if you don't believe that, ask Greg Locke. Hmm. And then, I'm not going to say more than that. But like when this first started happening, when I saw that reaction to the Wuhan, right, I knew we were going to be in trouble. I knew it. <sighs> People were going to divide over this. And there was going to become a very vocal 
division in the body of Christ over vaccines, over masks, over all of this silly, silly stuff, dude. And like me and you, we could both, we've gone through things. We've shared stories with each other about even how people close to us came down one side or another side on this whole mass things and hit relationships in our ministries. I mean, it's, it's crazy, dude. And I remember that moment, right, where I came on the, the, the air and I showed my face and I said, I'm not afraid. And Powerful moment. And yeah, the reason that this happened, and I don't share this very often, was because I was thinking a lot about how the early church would respond to these things about mask wearings and the passports that we all knew were coming and the vaccines. And and I could almost just, for the two, three years, me and you have been just digging deep into the kingdom, I could almost just hear an early Christian just say to me, like, you're worried about having to wear a mask in public. Some of us had our tongues cut out mm. so that we couldn't preach anymore. You're worried about having to show a passport to eat at a restaurant or go into your Walmart so that you can buy beef jerky, dude. And and we can't even get into the marketplace or eat fancy foods or choice cuts of meats because it's either all being like uh, sacrificed to idols, to Satan, or we have to go into the Agora to buy the stuff. And if we do that, we got to put a pinch of uh, incense to Caesar on our forehead or our hand. And say he's God, so we can't do any of this. But like, you're suffering really hard for Christ because you can still order stuff on Amazon. And like, they're locking you away in your homes. They used to lock us into overflowing dungeons. We slept on cold, damp floors. There were rats. There was all sorts of dysentery. And and when the guards were feeling extra cruel and punkish, when someone died, they would like literally leave that dead body right in the middle of the dungeon so that that decay and that that stink would just fill the place. And then we could ponder what disobedience to Rome meant. Like there's a passage where Paul talks about being chained to his flesh and the decaying flesh that he's chained to that he can't escape. I heard Pastor Clendenin say that was because there are theologians who believe that Paul was in such a dungeon where he was chained to a dead man. But that's what they had to endure. And and we were worried that we'd be locked away in our home, safe under our electric blankies, watching Netflix, chilling. Chained to the cell phone. Yeah. And and I heard the early church. I just I'm not saying that this was a vision or nothing, but like you know how you have those inner um, moral conflicts with yourself, right? Mm. How they would be like, dude. If they locked us in our home and, and, and they wouldn't come in and arrest us and they're just like, you just stay here. You don't leave. You just stay here. You're safe. Stay under your electric blankie. Oh, by the way, you have thousands of dollars worth of technology where you can broadcast something to a captive audience because everybody else is locked in your house, dude. We would have came out swinging with the gospel like none other. But instead, you're going to use that technology to post crap about the mark of the beast and masks and then say how you're suffering and you're fighting the good fight of faith. And I'm like, I felt so ashamed, dude. Because I knew in that moment that there was going to be a narrative. 
And it was either going to be this crazy truth or stuff, or it was going to be what the early Christians, which would, hey, let's just talk about Jesus. Let's try to encourage people. Let's uh, use this technology um, to help build the panicked people up so that they can overcome. And hopefully when this is done, man, they can get through on the other side stronger, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's either going to be used for the conspiracy stuff or the gospel stuff. And that was why I called everybody and was like family gatherings for a while. Yeah. You know, let's teach the Bible. Let's encourage people. Let's pray for people. Let's not get involved in all. Even Justin wasn't doing conspiracy stuff on his uh, family gatherings. He was doing Bible studies, man. Yeah. You know, we were just being very intentional that if we have this captive audience, that we're going to use it powerfully to preach the gospel. From that whole thing came our Saturday night services, changed the whole identity of Omega Frequency from just this end times podcast into something that became a community, man. Mm. And that's because that's how I saw the early church would have done it had they been in our circumstance. We, we would have stopped pitying ourselves and calling ourselves the martyrs when they went through so much more. And we would use what we have to glorify God and we would love one another. Because honestly, dude... Like if I was going to share my face, I've talked about this with probably only a couple of people. If I was going to share my face, and, and you knew this, man, we would try to roll it out during a time where we'd want that to be an impactful situation, right? Where it could help promote a project that we would possibly be doing or it would help promote a cause, right? Like, hey, let's. this is BDK. He's so passionate about this next upcoming project that he's willing to come on the thing. Like, I could have jumped on the conspiracy train. I could have came out, showed myself, and took my YouTube channel and turned it into the next Alex Jones because I know all the conspiracies. And I can be passionate about that stuff. I could have grown Omega frequency into hundreds and hundreds of thousands of subscriptions, right? Hmm. Like shooting fish in a barrel, man, during that panic. Yeah. I just wanted people to hear the scripture, man. I just wanted there to be a place where people could have fellowship in a discord or that they could pray for each other or they could worship together. That's what the early church would do, man. And more than just all the theology, more than just all of the nuts and bolts of it. It was this example of how they responded to the new world order of their day and how we respond. And that, that, that two, three years of advanced time where me and you would always be talking about the kingdom and we do shows on it. That really, when the crisis moment came, I had no doubt on what I needed to do because I saw it so clearly. I just had to have the faith to step out and do it. And I think that's so important for anyone when they're getting into this sort of stuff is to really have that touchstone, that that understanding that we're not special, we're not unique. The real persecution hasn't even begun yet. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's time we learn from people who really truly went through this stuff and we see how simply they lived their faith out, how they were willing to die, like you said, to defend other people and to defend the truth of the gospel. It's powerful, dude. That's the witness, right? 
like we talk about the they overcome the devil right by the blood of the lamb the word of the testimony that that testimony is witness man it's not like they got up and they had testimony time although i love sharing testimonies and having people share testimonies their testimony or their witness that overcame the devil was how they practically lived out their faith they were like basically on trial by the devil and they said i believe the things of the kingdom of god because i'm willing to die for them and if you believe that, what can Satan do to you? How can he kill you? How can he overcome you? You belong to something completely outside of his realm of influence and authority, man. And uh, we could go into so many soapboxes right now. But I'm worried, man. I'm worried for the church right now, dude, because I don't see us coming back to this. I see us going further in the opposite direction. Um especially on the Facebook, man. I've seen things from my own feed of people that I know who I love that I care about that were just posting the most insane things during this trucker stuff, man. And it's like, we really have to work on our discernment and we really have to do this because it's a matter of allegiance to God, man. And it's a matter of Bible prophecy. And I want to talk a little bit about that because that's the the main way, at least at this season of my life, how the early church fathers um, view Bible prophecy. And it's really impacted the way that I understand Bible prophecy. And since like technically this is omega frequency and it was supposed to be an end times ministry, like the way that they view the kingdom of God, man, and the the first and the second coming of Christ has radically shifted my understanding of Bible prophecy and the way that I'm going through the book of Revelation. Like people are literally showing up in my chats during the services and screaming at me and calling me a blasphemer of the Holy Ghost and a heretic and all sorts of stuff right during the live streams because they don't like this view of the kingdom of God, man. So explain that Being incorporated real quick. into scripture. Explain well, I was going to give you a chance to talk about some of this while I took a drink, man. I can come <laughs> back to it. No, nah, man. So like what, what I'd like to hear is, um, I guess, briefly how your view of the kingdom of God has, has developed and then how that has affected your view of Bible prophecy. So the thing about my viewpoint on the kingdom of God, right? is that it's a it's a concept that is here and is real but is not yet real mm -hmm. right it's a very real thing as as though there's a king there's laws there's a code of ethics there's a constitution to this kingdom in a very certain sense it was initiated 2000 years ago in the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus but that story's not over. It won't be fulfilled until the kingdom actually comes on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if you ask Bill Johnson what that means, he's going to say, well, that means we pray down the will of heaven on earth now. No, the earth will, like when Jesus is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem as the son of David, heaven will come to earth and the kingdom will fully come. And it's present inside the hearts of men now, but it's still something that's future. This idea 
of the kingdom of God being a one long continuous story of the gospel instead of two separate events has completely radically shifted the way I view Bible prophecy and the hills that I'm willing to die on and the conviction on which I'm willing to speak things. So like... Can I give an analogy real quick for those listening? Yes, please do. You could think about it kind of like salvation. Like Paul talks about us in the past tense, we were saved. Paul talks about us being saved and Paul says we will be saved. So we've been rescued, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness through the death of Jesus. In that sense, we were saved, we were rescued. Uh, we're being saved in sense that um, and we're being transformed into the image of Jesus from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit. Like, and then we will be saved as well. And that would be more of like the glorification. So like we, we are currently, like the kingdom of God is currently initiated by Jesus uh, when he was on earth. But then uh, he's coming back to rule and reign physically on earth, right? So yet, but not yet. He is reigning in our hearts, but the fullness of it is yet to come, just like our salvation. But it's very real, and it should produce very real fruit. But our, our salvation, which is kind of tied into the kingdom of God in a sense, growing in us like a mustard seed, there should be real visible change, but that doesn't it's not going to be more like that, the Bill Johnson thing where it's just like out of control, <laughs> silly stuff, miracle type stuff. There should be miracle stuff happening if we're going into the likeness of Jesus, but more so it should be a humility toward God and others, um, growing in the, in the character, like fruit of the spirit type stuff, um, responding uh, in thought and in our heart and in our actions and words like Jesus in situations, particularly, I would think, um, John 5 type of stuff, Jesus uh, says, like, I only, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what he tells me to say. That kind of stuff should become more and more our approach toward the world. And as we're doing that, his kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven, in a sense. Amen. Great analogy, man. Uh, the analogy that I like to use is something directly from church history, which is Barnabas uh, 15, 3 through 5, mm. right? Um, and the reason I use that is because I've always said, and if you're a fan of the BDK shows, what's the one thing I always say when it comes to discerning this mystical stuff or the prophetic stuff is God does nothing without a purpose. Mm. God's a God of decency. He's a God of decency and in order. His ways are above our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. Everything that is in that Bible means exactly what it's there to mean. He has a purpose for every single thing he does and none of it's a throwaway. So like we know in Psalms 90 and 2 Peter 3 that a thousand years is like a day and Barnabas has this really interesting quote where he basically is like, God used the six days of creation and the seventh day of creation as kind of like a timeline for human history. Yeah. Like if you were to stretch things out, as a matter of fact, this is the one thing I wrote down in my notes. So 
I could read it. Uh, <laughs> of the Sabbath, he speaketh in the beginning of creation. God hath made the works of his hands in six days. He ended it on the seventh day, rested it, he hallowed it. Give he children what this meaneth, he ended in six days. He meaneth this, that in 6,000 years the Lord shall bring all things to an end. For the day with him that signifies a thousand years, and this he beareth himself witness, saying, Behold, the day of the Lord shall be as a thousand years. Therefore, children, in six days, that is 6,000 years, everything shall come to an end. And he rested on the seventh day. This meaneth that when his son shall come, he shall abolish the time of the lawless one, and he shall judge the ungodly and shall change the sun, the moon, and the stars, and shall he truly rest on the seventh day. And that may seem like a date-setting thing, but it's not. It's a timeline. Like, I always ask myself crazy questions like, why did he choose seven days? Why did he choose to create things seemingly out of order? But he did it in a way that was specific to him. It must have meant something. He does nothing without on purpose. Like in my mind, right? I would have created the sun on the first day, right? Yeah. Instead of saying just let there be light, which was the light of God, and him putting back into, uh, he's basically trying to recreate a cataclysmic event in my viewpoint. If it was me, I would have created the sun first because. The plants that I'd be creating would need that sunlight to survive, right? Mm. But he doesn't. He goes out of his way to create the sun on day four. And like when I think about that thing, I'm like, that's kind of odd. But then you think about it like this, right? You take like a seven uh, day of creation, stretch it out to like 7,000 years. Day one of creation is kind of a recreation or a rebirth or a resurrection because I'm one of those people that believes that Satan was judged. He was cast out. A cataclysm happened that caused earth to become without form and void. And we see like, regardless of how long the earth had been around or the universe had been around the earth that we live on, that clock literally starts because the redemption is happening. Earth continues into the sixth day or the 6,000 years, which ends the age of men or the age of the ancient. Antichrist or the emperor, the empires of man. Mm. Um, the seventh day begins the Sabbath rule of Christ. And then when the seventh day comes to an end, the first full week begins like day eight, right? right? right. So like if you're on a calendar, day eight is just a repeat of day one. That's all it is, man. But we see after the seventh, the 7,000 years, day eight, is a recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. So everything is like one continuous story. Right. It's not like a second coming and then a second coming and a first coming. Like when does Jesus actually come to human history, right? Mm. He comes on the fourth day or in that 4,000 year window mark. Why? Because that's when the S-U-N was created. Yeah, the light of the world, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the creation narrative. That's where the light of the world comes to be made manifest. So from the time of Christ's first coming as the son of God until the end of the seventh year is one continuous long story. That's why us having minor disagreements with dispensationalists or preterists it gets into that tricky part because if we look at the events of the first coming, 
And then we look at the events of the second coming. We're like, oh, there's like 2,000 years that separate these two events. These are two separate events, the first coming and the second coming. We get very, very, very dogmatic, and we are very rightfully so protective of the gospel hill, right? Mm. Like this is the hill we die on. The and, and Paul's clear what the gospel in essence is, right? He said, this is what I was, was delivered unto me. This is the gospel. Yeah. It's the death, it's the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Right, First Corinthians 15. That's the central, yeah, that's the central gospel message. And, and so we're like, oh, that's the first coming. Let's fight for that. Let's die on that hill. But if this is part of one long narrative, then isn't the stuff of the second coming a hill to fight on too? For sure. And 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 I'll let me let me explain this because this is where this kind of hits me. Yeah. So like, I talked about the seven thousand years how Christ came at like the four thousand year mark in creation that all works out. But then you have the feasts, right? Mm-hmm. There's also seven feasts. Well, there's three spring feasts, three fall feasts. I mean, you and I have done shows on this before. But like right in the middle is that feast of Pentecost. Right. Right. Summertime. And yep, it's that uh first fruits, right? The Pentecost mm-hmm. was basically a Thanksgiving for the first fruits of the har- wheat harvest. It was that first tithe of the wheat harvest, man. It was the first evidence that there was going to be a wheat harvest at some point in the future. So they took that very first evidence of it and they waved it before the Lord. They gave praise to the Lord. And they said, this is like anticipation of when the, the field is ripe when the field is is ready to be harvested, all of these feasts kind of are agricultural in nature. Well, if you stretch those seven feasts out, right, where did Jesus come? He came on the feast of Pentecost, the four, right in the middle, right that four point, that 4,000 year point. We associate so very strongly Jesus's first coming with the first, uh, Feasts of Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. We think that that was the whole point of his coming. Well, if that was the case, then he wouldn't have came at the 4,000 year mark. He specifically came at the mark of Pentecost. You're talking about the Holy Spirit coming down? Or you're We're talking, talking about, about Jesus? Jesus right. physically being on the earth at around uh, the year four thousand and the seven thousand year time mark. Yep. That's so, like, if we're taking if we're taking the seven feasts of God. And we're putting them right. on that same time period. Yeah, he would have came on the fourth. Right. And basically, Jesus comes in the year of Pentecost um, because he has to fulfill the first three feasts so that he could basically plant a seed in the field. And we know that unless that seed falls into the ground and if it dies, it bears no fruit. So most of the kingdom parables that we talk about revolve around seed time, harvest time, fields. Basically, Jesus comes in the year of Pentecost. He's planting a seed in the ground, and he's going to go away like the good master does. And then he will return when that harvest is full and ready to be harvested at the end of the sixth year, which is the year of man. 
And so we see that this isn't two events. This isn't two stories. This isn't two gospels. This isn't a first coming, second coming situation. This is one long continuous narrative of Jesus coming as a seed, planting a seed in the ground, then going away as that good master, employing uh, laborers in the field and the harvest because the harvest belongs to the Lord. We have this year of 2000 some years now, which is like the time of man coming into it, the time of the Antichrist, the time of world empires. Um, Jesus is about ready to come back when, when the field is ripened to harvest. You read the book of Revelation, all that imagery is used at his return. And why is this important? Why does this impact what I do? Why is this message of Pentecost and the kingdom of God so important? There's two reasons for it. First is, like I said, the second coming and the resurrection of the saints and the rapture of the church is basically the same part of the story as the first resurrection of Jesus. Scripturally, we know this. Who is Jesus? He's the firstborn of the dead. He's the first fruits. He basically is that wave offering. The church is the wave offering, right? He's not. He's, he's the first fruits, the unleavened bread and all that other stuff. But the wave offering is the church. And he has to be on the earth presently at that time so that he can be the one giving that wave offering because he does it through the Holy Spirit. He does it as he's in heaven, so are we on the earth. The early church, when I read their writings, their idea of salvation and what we're being saved from isn't from hell, isn't a passport to heaven. It's we are saved from death and we are saved unto eternal life, the resurrection. The meek will inherit the earth. Salvation was a practical thing to them. Like when Paul was with the jailer, right? And he's like, if you believe you and your household shall be saved. He didn't preach them a five-point Calvinist sermon on what salvation was. He just told them point blank, yo, you're about ready to fall on your sword and die because the, this isn't going to go over well with your superiors. But if you believe in Jesus Christ and, and you believe and your family believes, you'll be saved. What he's basically saying is even if Rome comes in with their swords and kills you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the resurrection is, is, your, is your inheritance. That's how he preached that in a matter of minutes. The early church didn't, they weren't, they, they didn't know. I guess because they were simplistic and unlearned and uneducated and whatnot. They didn't know how to divorce the rapture and the resurrection and the second coming of Christ from the first resurrection of Christ because he was the first fruits of it. When, when we hear the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, that resurrection of Christ is not an incomplete sentence. It's a complete thought. The timing of the rapture, the timing of the return of the Lord, uh, our resurrection, what it means to be saved is tied up in Christ's resurrection. It's not two different events. It's just a matter of time that's being played out because it's all one continuous story. And when I understood that, man, here's where it comes to here's where it comes to showing grace. And, uh, and patience that you were talking about, right? People are like, well, we, don't, we shouldn't divide this like, idea of when the rapture is and when the time the rapture is. That's not a gospel issue. 
as a secondary issue, that's not a hill to die on. I don't think the early church would have viewed it that way. I think there was no division in the early church about the timing of the rapture and they weren't fighting about it. They're like, see, they didn't fight about it. Well, that's because they all believe the same thing. Yeah, yeah. The so resurrection. Like, all I was oh, going to say is like, yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree with what you're saying. Like there's no division and, and, and they would die on these hills. The only difference is that they wouldn't kill on those hills. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because the dying is the crucifixion of the self. The killing is the crucifixion of another. And I was just saying, like, I had a tendency to, like, kill on the hill rather than dying mm -hmm. on the hill. That's all. And that's, that's the patient part, right? We never see the church trying to debate people or excommunicate people for these issues. We never do, man. They strongly believed them. You know what would get you excommunicated in the early church? Not feeding the poor, not caring for the widow, lying about your offerings. Like the practical way of living the gospel out, if you violated that sort of stuff, if you if you bore a sword or joined a Roman army or any of this other stuff, they would excommunicate you for this. But nowadays we excommunicate, we disfellowship, we break fellowship, we kill on these hills of theology basically without seeing what's of the most importance. Because if we believe these things, then it's not a matter of what we believe as far as our rapture timing, but how then do we live knowing that we're smack dab in this story? Yeah. I don't apologize anymore for preaching the truth of what I believe. I'm willing to die on the uh, classical pre-millennial uh, viewpoint. I'm willing to die on that because to me, if if God, timing matters to God. It 100% matters to God. It mattered so much to him that the way that he even framed the universe according to Barnabas was all timing based. Everything is timing based. He knows when the rapture is. He knows where the timing of it is. He knows all of this. It's, it's in scripture. It's not a mystery. We need to start having these uh, talks and these debates in love with people because as the end times approach, it's going to be not an optional matter what you believe in because it's going to affect how you prepare to meet this prophetic hour. And your viewpoint on where you are in the story is of utmost importance, man. But we have to be able to do it in such a way that we speak the truth boldly, that we speak the truth with conviction and say, I'm not moving from this hill. But I'm not going to call you not saved if you don't believe it, but I'm going to try to give you my very best evidence as to why I believe that this is what it says and why this is important. Because a lot of times we're willing to fight with people to win an argument, but we're not willing to uh, reason with a person to try to help them to live better. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Like, I can win a rapture debate. I can do that. I've done that. But, like, if I'm going to talk about the rapture, I want to talk about, okay, what does this mean to you? What does this mean, dude? How how does this information impact how you live, man? I don't want to win a debate. I want to win your heart to Christ, and I want to win your allegiance back to him. Yeah, that, that's the key, man, trying to win the person. And you got you to gotta help them feel that you are for them, 
not so much for an issue. Like, yeah, you know, and, and that really has to, if that's not the motivation, it's going to come through eventually, you know? Um, and if a person really believes that you're for them, they're going to be much more inclined to hear us out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then the other really important reason of Jesus coming on Pentecost and this early church idea is that it's interesting to me to see like kind of your story because you're kind of like taking it from a Baptist perspective, right? Yeah, Southern. And in, and an Anabaptist perspective and you're kind of like, hmm, these two things are kind of, they almost seem incompatible, but they're <laughs> compatible yeah. in a weird way, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you would think that Pentecostalism would be even more compatible with Anabaptist theology because like true classical Pentecostalism is holiness, separation yeah. from the world, right. uh, not once saved, always saved. Um, it's, it's the spirit. It's the book of acts. It's the words of the apostles. But surprisingly I've, I rarely find like I'll, I'll come across a bunch of Mennonites or uh, Anabaptist people that listen to the podcast or appreciate the fact that I have a kingdom theology, but like they get tripped out when, when I start talking about Pentecostalism and I don't even use, like to use that word Pentecostalism. I, I prefer to call myself a spirit filled Christian because Pentecostalism has gotten so hijacked, but like there's a place in the kingdom of God for the Pentecostal experience. And this idea of being born again in the spirit and filled with the spirit of God, man, like that's what makes the kingdom come alive. Mm. And it, it's either what's going to make this Anabaptist message powerful because it's spirit and truth, it's theology and practice. Mm. It's literally the living out of our faith but the potential for abuse in it is also very, very great. Oh, yeah. I got a three-minute clip I want to play, and then we'll, we can move into, like, the last part of the conversation. But yeah, bro. I, uh, this is Pastor Burt Clendenin. He, uh, this is an old sermon of his, very old. Um, I got this audio clip from it, and he talks about the kingdom of God. And what it means to be born in the kingdom of God and what it means to have God living inside of you. And he talks about something that hadn't happened yet in the landscape of Christianity. And it's amazing. I'm going to play it for you. And I'm going to mute my microphone. The kingdom of God, what is it? Jesus told a certain group of people that some of them would not see death until they saw that kingdom come in power. Looking back now, I know, you know, he was talking about the day of Pentecost. When that wind blew through that upper room, heaven came into the hearts of men and women. The kingdom came in power on the day of Pentecost. When the wind blew, 
through that upper room, then the kingdom of God took up its residence in the heart of a human. It's not meat and drink, but Jesus said, joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. Again, he said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. That is, with a physical eye, but the kingdom of God is within us. And if that kingdom is within you, then you know it's there. Years ago, a man called me from Houston, and he said, Pastor, I watch you on television. I'd like to come to Beaumont and talk to you. I, I need some counseling. I said, well, that's fine. It's an hour drive. You're already on the phone. Maybe I can help you now. What do you want to talk about? He said, well, I want to see if you think I have the Holy Spirit. I said, oh, no, you don't. My, my, he said, such discernment. <laughs> I said, I didn't know discernment, sir. The God that inhabits eternity can't live in a man without a man knowing that. You, you may be here, somebody taught you a little prayer language. They lied to you, mister. The miracle wasn't that I talked in tongues. The miracle was he lived in me and gave me something to say. I watched that ecumenical thing as it spread back in the 60s. Just old and dead religious bodies joining themselves together for some kind of a political reason. I said to the folks here in this church, I said there's no harm in that. There's nothing to it whatsoever. But the day it takes on a Pentecostal context, it'll go straight to demonism. I've watched it, mister. Let me tell you something. This don't mix with anything. Christianity is not an accretion of everything. It is Christ. I said it is Christ. It is Christ Jesus, the Lord. This kingdom in a man separates him from whatever there is of this earth. You don't mix Baal in Christ, mister. There is no mixture. It's Christ in Christ alone that's a savior of us all. Hallelujah to God. Jesus on this earth, he talked much about a kingdom outside of this one. He talked about a kingdom of darkness where disembodied spirits dwell, where demons walk to destroy and disturb men. But he also spoke of a kingdom of light and power where God and angels live and invited me to walk in that kingdom. Oh, if I could run, I'd do it now. I said he invited me to walk in that kingdom. He told me about a world where God was real, where angels walk, where miracles happen, where it's commonplace with God. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. That to me is the crux of where I'm at with all of this. It's really interesting that he says, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, I started seeing these ecumenical churches, these Episcopalian, these dry dead churches coming together to try to achieve something political. And he's like, there's no power in that. That's harmless because that's just some people voting. But he said, once you start attaching Pentecostalism to politics, it'll turn straight into demonism. Then you tell me how that wasn't prophetic to the new apostolic reformation. Oh, yeah, man. Because the seven mountain mandate is the 
It's the bedrock principle. It's the mission. It's the great commission of the new apostolic reformation. And you want to know why that there's all this abuses, like you said, about Bill Johnson and all the crazy miracles and the fire tunnels and all of this stuff is because we've attached this, the, the things of the spirit, the Pentecostalism, the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we've attached it to the kingdom of earth, of politics, and it turned straight into demonism. Now, when he said that, there was no new apostolic reformation. There was no Mike Bickle and there was no C. Peter Wagner. There was none of that. You know, like, dude, that's, it's like 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul's talking about, you know, if you get with a prostitute, you become one with with them. Yep. You get in bed with the state, you start taking on the spirits of the state. Yep. That's all I wanted to say. No, but that's that's the point, right? But it, it also works conversely. And you take that message of Pentecost that Jesus came 4,000 years ago. At that 4,000 mark of the history of humanity, 2,000 years by our recollection. You, mess, you mirror that message of, of the Holy Spirit, of the demonstration not only of word but of power. You, you mirror that with the kingdom of God and you join yourself to that kingdom, not the table of demons, but the table of Christ. And when Paul talks about the, 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 the table of demons, he's talking about the table of Caesar. Make no mistake about that. But he talks about there being a table of Christ or a kingdom table. And we need to understand that there is a kingdom of darkness, that there is a kingdom of light, that there is a war that's going on. And the proof and the ultimate manifestation of the kingdom is when the king of the universe lives inside of a person's heart. Like, let me ask you a question, Phil. Like, did when you were hooked on marijuana, and for me it was hooked on alcohol, right? Like, I enjoyed drinking more than I enjoyed drugs. You enjoyed drugs probably more than drinking. Did anyone have to ever convince you to spend your money buying pot? (laughs) No. Did anyone ever have to drag your butt to a party where there was dope? No, you're seeking it out. No one ever told me that I had to go to, to a bar. Like they had to drag me to church. They had to drag me to be in the fellowship of God's people, but not the sinners. I, I would go willingly to that. Why? And if I didn't have any money, they just line of credit, man. Right? Mm. Right? Just, we'll start a bar tab for you. But you know how we get people into the church, Phil, around the people of God? We got to have schemes and we got to have gimmicks and we got to have baits and we got to have hooks. Yeah. <sighs> The thing about the kingdom of God is when it comes, the proof of it is that a person is born again and changed. And that a person becomes new, brand new, that the old things pass away, that the things of the world become divorced from that person, that they be filled with a whole new power source, a whole new allegiance. They walk in a realm full of angels and and miracles, all that stuff in the kingdom of light. That ought to be the reality Jesus never divorced the two. He said, go preach the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus and then go and raise the dead, heal the sick, 
do all that stuff. And then they'll say, well, that ended in the apostolic age. There is no apostolic age. There's just one story, man. One story. We're right in the midst of the story. The story wasn't the first and the second coming. It's about the kingdom of God. That's what this story is. It's the story about how the kingdom of God becomes ultimately manifest. He came the first time and planted a seed. He is calling forth laborers now to go out in the harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest. The master, yeah, he may be delaying his coming for a little bit, but he's going to come back when the harvest is ripe. That's the story. That's the story, man. It's that simple. The reality of it is, is where do you fit in this story? What part will you play? And what will you believe? Have you truly been saved? Have you truly been born again? Are you living as the early Christians of winning? Are you standing on the hills and fighting for the hills that are worth dying for? Are you using it to be a killing field on Facebook? Are the things that you're speaking, are you speaking them soberly from a born-again heart? Or are you doing it to be controversial and costing people their faith? When you talk about like things we wish we would have done differently. I'm, I'm all preaching right now. I'm on my soapbox, but I'm the first one to call shenanigans on myself, dude. Like, if I had one regret that I would have done differently, I would have spoken parables from the jump. I would have been like Jesus. I didn't understand that. And all my zealous learning to learn all these new concepts and the shiny new uh, keys that were handed to me, the keys of the kingdom were handed to me like a, you get those keys, dude. And you're just like, oh, I'm gonna, I just got the keys. And it's like, yeah, you're probably gonna get in an accident too. Because you're driving down the road and you're looking at the jogging women passing by. And next thing you know, you've wrapped your, your car around a post. <sighs> but Jesus was smart, dude. He spoke of the kingdom in parables time and time again. And this, this like I said, this, this uh, doctrine of the kingdom is like dynamite because it's so far off the beaten path that it's so controversial, man, that... I wish in the beginning I would have done what Jesus did and spoken parables. Because all I did was just burst a lot of wineskin and lost a lot of my audience. They were like, wait a minute, you were pro-Constitution Party, you were pro-guns, you were pro-all this stuff, and now you're like the David Hogg of gospel preaching. Like, and people left. Right. I wish that instead of me just coming out and bullhorning truth, and it was important. I'm never going to apologize for truth. I wish I would have shared more stories about missionaries who lived their faith out. I wish I would have shared more stories from early church history of how Christianity was spreading like a virus. I wish I would have uh, shared parables that showed people living by kingdom precepts that would have proved my point for me. Right. I wish I would have shared stories about that. Like, I'm trying to think of who that name of that. You'll know him. You'll probably jump in because you're the rain man of this stuff. But there was that one Anabaptist prisoner, right, who escaped from his captor. He's running across the ice. The ice breaks. He fall, The captor falls in. Instead of just running away scot-free and being like, aha, I'm out of here. I don't care if this guy dies. He goes back, grabs that guy, pulls him out, and it ends up costing him his life. I wish I would have shared more stories like that. I wish that I would have spent more time being parabolic in the beginning 
and then sprinkling truth in to the point where people would have been like, oh, now I get what he's saying, you know? Yeah. I wish I would have done that because what in doing that, it would have been more than me just like, oh, I got a shiny new platform I can preach on. It would have been, I would have like been thinking about my audience and audience is such a bad word. The people listening to the message, I would have been thinking about my family members and thinking about how they were going to respond. And instead of getting mad that they responded in a unkind and uncaring way towards me for speaking the truth, I should have put my pride down and been like, no, there's a reason why they're angry at me. There's a reason why I'm not a martyr because I'm speaking this truth and I'm not, shouldn't be wearing this as a badge of honor. Maybe I missed the ball here. Maybe I could have done this way differently if I would have started off by sharing concepts and parables um, and breaking it down that way. Because I think Jesus was smart in the way that he did it. And I know that there are a lot of people that listen to our podcasts who feel a calling of God for ministry on their life, who are either involved in ministry or feel called into ministry and dig deep into this kingdom stuff. And they're at that point where they got these shiny new keys, man. And I would just, to anyone that's at that point, like Phil talks about that patience. And I just want to say like, Think about the people that you're listening to, the people that you're going to be preaching to, the people that are ministering to, and really think about how they're going to receive what you're going to say. You don't have to compromise what you're going to say to them. You don't have to like give it to them with a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. You don't have to compromise the truth, but how are you going to say it in such a way that it's not going to be like a wineskin bursting in their head? You know? Yeah, we don't want to burst the wineskin. We want to let the Holy Spirit do it. Yeah, we want the Holy Spirit to do that. And and I'm not going to say that I was a complete fool because, I mean, I'm pretty open about this, man. I cry and I pray over people and I pray over people and I cry and I get laughed at and made fun of when I cry publicly on videos. That's not fake, man. I care about the people who I minister to. There are times where we talk about serious stuff and it brings me to tears. Like, I hope that anyone who's out there trying to preach this message literally can say that they've wrestled in tears for the people that they're presenting it to. Because if you want to talk about what's the most authentically early Christian church thing to do, it's that. Dude, that, that's, that's dude, how they ministered. That is like, that's in my top two or three regrets is that when I was first coming into this stuff, I should have sought God harder than I was seeking out the early Christian writings. Amen. And I didn't. Sorry, man. Go ahead. Nope, that was all I had to say. Right. <laughs> that uh, that uh, Anabaptist dude was Dirk Willems. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Cool story. Y'all should check it out. Did you have another regret you wanted to touch on, or was that it? That was that was my major regret. Yeah. Like, I should have put my audience first and not let pride get in the way of, uh, like, I got this truth. I'm going to, no. Like, I think what kept me from falling dramatically was because I've always cared about people. I've always prayed and I've always cried. So it could have been a lot worse. And it could have been a lot worse if I had not had Phil Baker by my side trying to help guide me through this. 
like we are all going to have to start preaching this message because Jesus is not a liar. Right. He's not a liar, Phil. Jesus said that before the end will come, people will preach the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness, and then the end will come, which means that the end will not come until the gospel message of the kingdom of God, this message that we believe in, the message that the early church preached, is restored back to the church. Because it won't, he, he physically can't come back until that has been preached. And right now, there's only a small remnant of people preaching that message. And that's in foreign countries. We look at this thing like, oh, we're going to be the missionaries and we're going to go take the gospel to all these countries. These countries you want to take the gospel to, they're already preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Like where we need to evangelize and take the, the gospel of the kingdom of God is back to our country because we've gotten away from it. And prophetically, one of the things that is going to happen before Jesus returns is if he says that specifically this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached as a witness, a faithful witness. After all, that's what he called John and he called himself in the book of Revelation. Someone that's willing to die for this kingdom message. Then I ask myself, where is that message in America? Where is that message in Canada? Where is that message in Europe? Because that is not the gospel we are preaching. That is not the, the missionary gospel that we're sending around the world either right now. And yet, it's going to be present before he returns. Something, there's going to be a catalyst and a spark where the remnant in America, Canada, Europe, these places that are preaching a counterfeit gospel are going to be exposed to the true gospel of Christ again, because God is good and God is merciful. It would behoove each and every one of us listening that have a mind towards ministry to not only understand what the gospel of the kingdom of God is, but to understand how to present it and how to preach it. Because if we want to say we believe in the second coming of Christ and we want to say we believe in the return of Christ, well, then it's all part of one story and we better get our story straight. And we better learn not only how to defend this faith and contend for this faith once delivered to the saints through the hands of the apostles, this apostolic faith, this one holy apostolic church. But we better minister like Jesus ministered. And we better stop trying to win arguments and we better start trying to win our brothers back to the kingdom of God because we're going to need every single brother and sister to stand with us and to squat up with us in these coming hours because what's coming upon the earth is going to be dark. But Jesus is the son of God and he's the S-U-N of God and he is the light of the world, man, and he will always shine. Amen. Yeah, Brian. Amen. Um, I think it'd be good to just kind of wrap it right here. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, man. This has been really cool. I We talk a lot, but um, I love hearing this kind of talk. I mean, this is really cool. And I think it's really important for all of us to, to really consider, um, like your, your pastor... Um, Brother Clendenin, he's really getting at this issue of, like, do you really know God? Yeah. Um, because, like, we can, we can 
quote all kinds of Bible verses. We can talk all about Polycarp. <laughs> you know, we can we can do miracles. We can cast out demons. So did Judas. Judas did all those things, you know. Um, but other than talking about Polycarp. But uh, do we really know him? Amen. So uh, just to, to close us out, in just a couple of minutes, BDK, can you tell people how to know Jesus? Yeah, definitely. So to know Jesus means to have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Like you said, when we stand before Jesus, he's not going to ask us for our resume or our, our, our list of conquests. Did you cast out devils? Did you speak with tongues? Did you prophesy? It's going to come down to, do you know me or I didn't know you? You know, we talked about a little bit about politics, but like everybody loves Trump, dude. Everybody loves Trump. And Trump is one of those few people that's like, quote unquote, a man of the people. Like he'll he'll stick around and he'll talk with people and he'll sign stuff and he'll, you know, like if you're out of work, like there were times where he was uh, signing stuff and saying, go sell this on eBay and get yourself a meal. Like he's a very personable dude. One of the things that people really loved about Trump was that like, even though he was abrasive, like you spent time with him and it just seemed like he knew you. And in some sense, you could say, well, I've met Trump. I know everything about Trump. I know his story. I know his birthday. I know all of the information about him. And I am a supporter of his cause. And I stand at the rallies and I hold the signs and I wear the MAGA hats and I do it all, man. I know Trump. I met him. We sat down at a diner. He was doing a tour. We sat down. We talked for 20 minutes and he bought me my apple pie. I know Trump. And that's our side of the story. But if you were to ask Trump about that meeting, he wouldn't remember your name. And he wouldn't know all the times that you stood holding signs. He wouldn't know anything about you on a personal level. And when you want to ask someone, do you know Christ or how do you get to know Christ? The only way to do it is to go beyond just that. I know the facts about Christ or I know what my pastor says about Christ or I know what my denomination says about Christ or I know what my YouTube uh, video channel says about Christ. Because we think we know someone, but if then if you ask that person, if they know you, that story completely changes. The only way to know Christ is to have a relationship with him. And the only way that you know Christ intimately is having time that you spend alone with him. And we talk about going to the secret place, but I'm here to tell you that the secret place is Christ. And you want to know Christ? Dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. And you want to have peace in this this world right now, the crazy things that are going on. You look at Psalm 91 and us charismatics and us spirit-filled people, we misappropriate that passage. 
we sit back and we say, oh, that's about we're going to name and claim this protection and we're going to name and claim that no plagues are going to come, blah, 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 blah. Read that psalm, dude. He's talking to Jesus. God the Father is talking to his son Jesus in that psalm. He's making all these promises to Jesus. We must abide in him as he abides in us. To know Jesus and to be saved by Jesus is two different things, man. Jesus saves you by his grace, not through works. It's a, it's a sovereign work of God. He chose to save all of humanity. But humanity has to come to God and accept that into their lives, man, at their own free will. And, and, and the Holy Spirit of God places us in Jesus. But to know Jesus literally is to abide in Jesus. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. Every choice that we make determines if we are abiding in him or not. This is something that the early church really had that dichotomy that made them almost sound heretical, like they didn't believe in, in grace through faith alone. They did but they also realize that the only way that you abide in the shadow of the most high or the only way you have that protection in Psalm 91 is if you abide in the one who the promises are yea and amen in. And if you want to know Jesus, then you must abide in him because the, the secret place in Psalm 91 is Jesus and the secret place that you have that Jesus talked about, that prayer closet, that's still Jesus. And if you want to know him, and abide in him, then you must have time with him or you pray to him and you talk to him and you you study his word, you show him reverence and you let the Holy Spirit guide you. That's the only way to know him. To know him is to abide in him, to be intimate with him. Jesus will save you, but then man, you must abide. And you can... It's like Pastor Clendenin said, man, if the king of the universe lives in you, you're going to know it, right? But you just can't take that for granted. You have to abide. You have to stay there. You have to keep letting him own the house because you, you know, like your analogy about the house owning thing is awesome. I'm, I'm, you told me to be succinct. I'm not being succinct. Knowing him isn't a one-time event. It's not a walking of an aisle. It's not accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Knowing him is a process. It's a story. Just as his coming, his uh, 2,000 year stories being written, knowing him is a process that's going to happen from the moment you're born again till the time that you finish your race. That's where we know that that's a long period of time. So I hope that helps. Yeah, absolutely, man. Everybody go check out the Omega Frequency YouTube page, Omega Frequency Live. Check it out on what days of the week are they most likely to catch that BDK if they want to catch it live? Uh, we're usually broadcast on Wednesday afternoons, but if you want to catch us live, we're always going to be there live on Saturday evenings, 8 p.m. Central Time, prayer meeting following at 10 or so Central Time in a separate stream. But if you want to learn more about Bible prophecy from a kingdom perspective, a strict kingdom perspective, a one long storyline perspective, come check it out. Right now, every sermon that I'm preaching on Saturday nights is expository through the book of Revelation, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So check it out, man.
gonna change my ways. Hey!